Okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our studies of, of Hebrews. We are going to finish it today, whether we do or don't. Um, I think we will. In fact, I think we're going to have plenty of time. So, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the very end of chapter 12, and then on into chapter 13, which is the last chapter of the epistle. Let's open with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, recalling, if we zoom all the way out, the book of Hebrews is don't apostatize by going back to Judaism. It's not as good as Christianity. Uh, Christ is superior to Moses. His covenant superior to the old covenant. His priesthood, his kingship, his temple, his sacrifice, everything is better. And then also I would say there's this call to follow in the way of Christ and in the way of his saints namely in a path through suffering, having not yet received the promises. Um, you remember that section. And uh, especially chapter 11 being following in the path of those who have not yet received the promises or die having not yet received the promises. I think the author of Hebrews is preparing his people to be willing to uh, keep the faith even at the shedding of their own blood, even if that means keeping the faith unto death, just as the great cloud of witnesses have. Um, you have this picture of the cloud of witnesses watching them as they run the race with their eyes set on Jesus, following him. So Jesus increasingly becomes the template. Uh, he is the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we talked about how that how God is perfecting our faith and through suffering. And that's really the first part of chapter 12. And then in chapter... Oh yes, this is where it was. And then in um, chapter 12, verse 18... He has this contrast between the two mountains, which again, what's in view here, Sinai and Calvary, and the two covenants, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, that is, and the uh, new covenant, or Christ's covenant. So, uh, just to bring us back up to speed, let's start at 12.18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Now, what may be touched here is Sinai. So you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Hey, so you haven't come to this, this old covenant. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. So we're contrasting here Mount uh, uh, Sinai with Mount Zion or Mount Calvary. And to the city of the living God, of course, um, you know, thinking here, 
Jerusalem is on the city. It's kind of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what you get next. Here is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But now, as we've already seen, there's this contrast that you have not come to what may be touched. So these are spiritual realities. Mount Zion is a spiritual reality. It's the reality on which Christ, God in His grace, gives His Son, His Son and His love lays down His life for us. Our sins are forgiven. That's Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, interesting that it says you have come. Because Hebrews puts the, or excuse me, Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews puts the emphasis on this in terms of a present tense reality. Revelation, of course, puts the emphasis on this being a future reality. Remember the great city descending from above the new Jerusalem? So there's a now and not yet in the scriptures in regard to this. But the key is that we, namely being Christians, even all the way back to the first century Christians, we have come to this thing not touched with hands. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, okay, in which exist innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly or congregation of the firstborn, and that's us because we're adopted into Christ who is the firstborn. That's what that means. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So there is a uh, a kind of church militant picture here in a sense though enrolled in heaven we are here on earth now while all of this is kind of abstract and kind of a spiritual reality i think if we were to think most concretely about this with the first century um, christians we'd be thinking about the divine service we'd be thinking about coming into the presence of god of the saints of the angels How do we know we're in the presence of God? How do we know we're on, as it were, Mount Zion and partaking of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem? Because Christ's body and blood are there for us. That's really the key. Christ's body and blood being there for us. Christ is with us. His, when we receive his sacrament, we're receiving the sacrament of his death. That's why St. Paul says that we proclaim his death as often as we eat this, uh, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup. It's also why we, when we're eating the body and drinking the blood is two separate things, they're separated, so it's the sacrifice made once and for all that we're partaking of. That immediately then takes us to Mount Zion, to the mountain of God's salvation in Christ, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is why we say in the liturgy, and not just us as Lutherans, it goes earlier than that, with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. So heaven and earth are wed as one in the sacrament. And we are with uh, innumerable angels in festal gathering. The assembly of the firstborn, this is really the saints, who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
souls of departed Christians are with Christ in heaven. So what you would glimpse then in verse 23 is to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's the church militant, the church on earth. Uh, militant because we're fighting the good fight. We're clothed in the armor of God. And then when you get to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, why spirits? Their bodies are in the ground. And they're the spirits of the righteous made perfect, brought to their completeness, brought to their fullness. Um, that's the saints in heaven. So again, what's the liturgical formula with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. So not just the saints we see in front of our eyes, that's the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, but also those saints we don't see with our eyes, um, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So chapter uh, 12, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. If you go looking in the red letters for what the new covenant is, you're going to find that Jesus is the one who instructs us, and it's his cup, the cup of his blood. Thus, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that blood is being sprinkled upon us as we receive it in our lips, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, if you remember back in Genesis, his blood cried out for vengeance for justice, Christ's blood cries out for pardon, for forgiveness. You see the difference? All right, so God and Christ, the church on earth and the church in heaven and innumerable angels all gathered in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And I'm asserting to you that all of this, because the author puts it present tense, you have come to these things, that this is how we're to picture the divine service. And that's what he wants us to do. Please. Uh, the meaning of media, uh, mediator, would that be like giver or provider? Or mm. what do you, what's it mean? Good question. A mediator is a go-between. I, I know what, I know it's a go-between, but in this case, would it be the provider of the new covenant? Would it be the Giver of the new covenant. Oh, I, I see. So I think what's going on here is you have, um, okay, you have what might at first glance seem to be some redundancy. I actually just think it's part of the poetic construction. Okay, you've come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God. So God has been introduced. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and to God. I mean, he kind of already said that. Um, but I think here in introducing God, the judge of all, then he's got the spirits and to Jesus, the mediator. So whereas God is the judge of all, the one mediating for us is Christ Jesus. He's the go-between and he's a mediator of a new covenant, um, which I think the very next clause really just embellishes or specifies what that new covenant is, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Yeah. So did that help to kind of answer? Or maybe I didn't under, understand your question specifically. Get you the microphone here. He's the provider of the new covenant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, he is. And of course, the... 
the old covenant, by contrast, is instantiated by Moses as he's sprinkling the people with the blood of bulls. This one instantiated by Jesus as he's taking the blood of his once and for all sacrifice on the cross and sprinkling our lips with it through his chalice. So, you know, I, I think the rhetorical point is like, would you rather be at Mount Sinai? Because that's what you're, go- you're turning your back on all of this, this reality of Mount Zion, the city of God, God, angels, archangels, the church on earth, the church in heaven, Christ Jesus himself as your mediator, his blood be- sprinkling you clean. Are you ready to turn your back on all that and go back to the first covenant? Because that's a covenant of doom and gloom and fear and terror. And even Moses himself was terrified. That's what you, really, that's what you want to go back to? I think that's the rhetorical punch here. Pastor? Yes, please. Uh, it's significant to me what you just mentioned, that this, when you contrast it with what Revelation 21 talks about, is the future new heaven and new earth. But in reality, this describes what's here right now. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, myself and others, uh, we don't realize the, the now. Yeah, uh, and what the divine service is—it's—it's—it's mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's just, it's just very special. It's the presence of this new kingdom. This new, yes. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fun that can be had with that, and and one of the one of the fun things I think we can meditate on is Revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, and uh, and apocalypsis that's in English apocalypse, and we always think apocalypse as being this great big terrifying thing, but that's not exactly what it means. Apocalypsis is unveiling, and so there's there's a sense in which what's unveiled in Revelation is what's already present, right? It's just it's not such that it can be touched right now, but it's there. It's real. It's true. It's not substantively any different than that which will be. It's just now we have it by faith, then we'll have it by sight. So that would be another distinction that we could make here. I don't mean to drive too hard of a wedge. There's just a now and not yet, a realized and unrealized eschatology going on if you contrast this part of Hebrews with Revelation, that would be like the literary way to do it, but even just in terms of like the three-dimensionality, the, the historical event and reality of the thing itself, when we go to divine service, that's a foretaste of the feast to come. It's distinguishable because it's a foretaste, not the feast, but it's united because it's a taste. You know, when my mom was making pizza, she would make homemade pizza, Fantastic. We'd always like smell the ingredients cooking and it was heavenly. And we'd always go running up and she would take a toothpick and put a little bit of the sausage, maybe a a mushroom and some cheese and then dip it in the sauce, the pizza sauce and give us that. It's a foretaste of the feast to come. It is the feast, but it's just a foretaste, not the fullness of the feast. You see? So even in that language foretaste of feast, you can make a distinction and say these two things are not identical. And yet you can make a convergence and say, but in fact, they kind of are because you're eating the very thing you're about to eat and feast on. Okay, so that's the way we would look at this too in terms of the divine service and particularly the Lord's Supper, that the service of the sacrament. This is a foretaste of the feast that is to come. 
And I, I mean, I don't know. The worship, <laughs> the worship wars aren't really a thing here at Faith. God be praised. Um, but this, it, but if I was, you know, for those of you listening online, if the if the worship wars are a thing you all are going through, what there there could not probably be a better text than this one to indicate what worship should look like. You're in the presence of the angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. And then it's like, well, how do I know they don't have the electric banjo and the fog machine going? Well, then you go to Revelation, where you glimpse heaven and you glimpse the worship of all the angels and all the saints in the throne room of God, and you see that um, it's it's reverent, it's holy, it's I mean, it's strange to say it's it's earthy and real. It's not pretentious and fake and orchestrated, um, but it's nonetheless very reverent. And I think that that's what you would get here too. The things were were handling by faith, seeing by faith, perceiving by faith are um, the most holy things. And so there's a, a reverence that has no room for phoniness or pretense, but nor does it have any room for irreverence or um, crass casualism. Good to move on. Everybody okay? Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, interesting because him who is speaking, that's a, that's a kind of a difficult exegetical question to work out, but I would si- simply submit to you for our purposes and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you refuse, uh, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I would say that's Jesus or Jesus' blood, which is the same as Jesus. And that's, of course, what they're about to do. Now, here a warning. We've heard this kind of rhetoric before in the epistle. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, so it's like the entire like Old Testament people, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So here in view, if the Old Testament people did not escape, when they refused Moses, much less will we escape if we reject Jesus. Moses from earth, Jesus from heaven. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. And, okay, so this verse, if you read that backward, you can see something else in these verses. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. So in light of that verse, some people will go back here and say, well, him who warned them on earth is actually God from Sinai. Okay, so that's another possible reading. And then... Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That's God from heaven. And so there the contrast isn't like Moses and Jesus, but really rather earth and heaven. Not going to make too much of that. You can pick whatever you think makes the most sense. Just going to say that it's possible to see that there. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And I love this because this is the picture of the final judgment. Um, you remember from Isaiah, the shaking. And um, remember Handel's Messiah? And I will. they got the big like bass guy doing the shaking with his voice going back and forth. Like, I'm not going to imitate it. It'll be online forever as a meme. But um, yeah, it's, so I will shake. So the whole thing about shaking is when you shake something, what is worthless falls off. That's the point. So shaking as judgment. And you think of that like for us, we just have to endure the shaking by trusting in the Lord Jesus. We're going to be shaken with it. We're just not going to be shed off. And so that's another way to look at the violence that the world is going through. You know, it's upheavals, it's um, cataclysms, it's famines and plagues and wars and tragedies and everything else. It's this violent shaking and we simply cling to God who is doing the shaking and we will remain. Those who do not will fall off. If it's, if it's not grounded and secure, yes. Yeah, faith grounded and secure in Christ, otherwise you fall off in the shaking. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, and I would say here that like cannot be shaken off. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Wait a minute, there would be unacceptable worship? Yeah, definitely. Lots of different kinds of unacceptable worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there again, I see this whole section is pretty important for us to pay attention to as Christians when we're considering the nature of worship needs to be acceptable with reverence and awe, a, rec- a recognition that God is our consuming fire. Yeah. yeah, Cain's, it was said earlier in Hebrews that due to a lack of faith, that's really what Hebrews latches on to. Right, his... Mm-hmm, his sacrifice was lacking faith. Yeah, so... It was kind of what we might even say like an ex opera operato kind of sacrifice of like, I've got to do this so it keeps going well for me. Um, and that, that might be one of the ways in which we could see an unacceptable worship is, well, I've got to go punch, you know, put in my time, punch the clock so that I can keep on doing whatever I want to do. Please. In, uh, in John 4, Jesus tells the woman at the well, there's a time coming when you will worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, I assume that's acceptable worship, but in the context of that, what does sp- worship in spirit and truth mean in acceptable worship defi- defined here? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just take that, and I know it's going to be a little pedestrian, but I think that's fine. I would just simply take that in this context as it's going to be worship of God um, in the Holy Spirit through the truth that is Jesus Christ. So that's how I would view what's going on here. 
I mean, if you're, if you're just paying attention to the words themselves, you see God and you see Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, like, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, he's the one writing the words. He's the one enlightening our hearts and um, so that we can see and believe. He's the one in the assembly inspiring our worship and directing us toward Christ and Christ to God. So I, yeah, I view that worshiping God in spirit and truth is essentially a Trinitarian reality that Jesus is talking about. So unacceptable worship of God would obviously be worship of God. I mean, even if you're claiming that it's Yahweh or the God of the Bible apart from Christ, that would be unacceptable worship. And that's effectively what you're doing if you go back to Judaism. You're rejecting Christ and that covenant. You're going back to the Mosaic covenant. So that would be unacceptable worship. All right, so then uh, chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained Angels unaware. Um, all right, so are these angelic beings that we might entertain unaware? Yeah, sure, that's a possibility. I mean, even though there's more to it than this, Abraham entertained angels. Um, probably a theophany there. I mean, certainly a theophany in part. But there is this kind of example in the scriptures. So, yes, brotherly love. I think verse 2 like keeps that brotherly love from being sectarian because we also want to show hospitality to strangers. I think all of this is in the I think all of this really has to do more with the divine service um and the Christian community maybe more broadly and less to do with us as individuals in our lives but you know again I don't want to drive too hard of a wedge there because it's good advice period. So, hospitality to strangers, thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The other possibility here would be like pastors, but I just don't think that fits. Because angel just means like messenger, and it can, in very rare occasions, carry that meaning. But I don't, I just don't see that meaning fitting here or fitting elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. So what is all of this doing? This is preparing them for the hostilities to come. They're going to remain in the faith. They're going to face persecution. They need to let brotherly love continue. They need to show hospitality to strangers. Whereas, you know, anytime there's persecution, love is jeopardized. Anytime there's persecution, you might shut your doors to strangers. Don't do these things. You know, show brotherly love. Don't shut your door to strangers. Um, remember those who are in prison. Why are they in prison? Because of the persecution. And remember them as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. That is, you would know very well what it's like to be mistreated. So this is, I think that this is preparing their, them and their mindset for the persecution that's to come. Otherwise, you just see him kind of pivot and do a bunch of uh, just exhortation. Let marriage be held in honor among all, 
and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. All right, well, let me submit to you, too, that there's, there's at least at this point, there's... Um, You've got, you've got a little bit of a reflection on the commandments here that you can see because you've got the fifth commandment in terms of remembering those who have been mistreated because you also are in the body, those who have been hurt or harmed in their body in the language of the catechism. Fifth commandment type of themes underlying there. And then Verse 4, 6th commandment type of themes, let marriage be held in honor among all. We need more of that, don't we? Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And then 5, keep your life free from the love of money. This is kind of a... So you've got 5, 5th commandment theme, 6th commandment theme, Seventh commandment theme. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. I mean, these are the ways that people are led into apostasy. Violence makes you chicken out. Sex, that you would be led into sexual promiscuity and money, that it would become profitable for you or your business to not be martyred <laughs> or to not be Christian. Anyway, so I think that this is what all these themes have to do. No matter how you work out the details, I think that that's what he's preparing them for. Martyrdom, for suffering, and for the various leverage points and temptations that they'll face as they go on about. And I think that I would, to tie a bow on that, this quotation here in uh, verse 6, cited from Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, any thoughts? We okay? All right, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Yeah, this is, um, the, the study note says that this is an office distinct from the saints in verse 24. So this is leading us, you know, perhaps former elders or pastors, including some already put to death for their Christian confession. I think that's kind of right. I think what's in view here are chiefly um, chiefly martyrs, but maybe those who had a specific um, like preaching or teaching role, so pastor martyrs. Of course, they're not living in a vacuum. This is the you know the first century. This has already happened. The apostles and disciples have already 
been martyred. So remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I mean, while this may also be generally true, I think what's in view here is their faithfulness unto death. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Yeah, it's hard to know what's going on here. And obviously, in the, you know, in, in um, the Corinthian congregation, I had some of this dietary stuff going on and people being led by astray, led astray by it. Is that what's going on here? Hard to say. But I would say, like, neither diverse nor strange teachings. Yeah, the diverse and strange teachings probably do have to do with foods. So much of what the New Testament calls doctrine, <laughs> we, we would call, like, morality or ethics. So much of what the, what the New Testament refers to as doctrine is not like, all right, let's launch into a Christology here, uh, but let's, let's talk about the role of older men and older women and younger men and younger women in the life of the congregation. So I think maybe that is the case here, that diverse and strange teachings probably has to do chief, I mean, it's generally true, but it has to do chiefly in context with these foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them, Probably the dietary laws of the Jews in place here. Because of 10, what comes next? We have an altar from which those who serve the tent. Interestingly, I don't know if he, nest, I don't think he means it pejoratively because he's referred to the, the temple as the tent before in a context that wasn't pejorative. So we have an altar. I mean, interesting that he uses the language of altar. Just from a first century, like, what did they have standpoint? Yeah, sir. Um, right here. Sorry, I just wanted to back up just a little bit, and I was wondering if you could help me understand the... It, it seems like there's a, a rather abrupt change here from verse 7 to 8. So, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then all of a sudden we get kind of a hard... It's, in my mind, it seems kind of... Abrupt. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Can you mm -hmm. help me understand, like, how, where's he going with that, or how did he make this leap there? Okay, so my take on that is he's asking them to remember their leaders. I look at this broadly. So it would be more like, look at the apostles and prophets and pastors who have kept the faith no matter what's happened to them, even death. And part of that's going to be a past tense looking back. So I think what he's trying to say is Jesus is the same yesterday, how does he put it, um, yesterday, today, and forever. Like, it's immovable, it's unchangeable, so don't think that now suddenly you can be a faithful Christian or go back to the Old Testament because Jesus is there or, you know, abandon this and remain faithful to God. I think he's calling them to continuity. And, you know, it does say your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, that can be general, but I would think that it's all like kind of generally first century type stuff. 
But it, yeah, I think that that's the transition. So Jesus didn't, as it went for them, so it should go for you. Imitate them. Christ isn't changing. He's the same. I think that's the sense, if that helps. Okay, so I, you know, as we're trying to piece together what are these strange and diverse doctrines, what do they have to do with food, now I think we get a little more specific to what he has in mind, that these are the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, because verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that is, we Christians, have an altar um, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So... Our, if you want to go to dietary laws, I think he's saying we have the Lord's Supper and they're unworthy to eat this and all their other dietary laws are nonsense. So you also have a kind of uh, first century closed communion here. Um, the Christian altar from which they're eating the body and, and blood of Christ is not for the Jew who rejects it, for the one who serves the the tent. Now, serving the tent, you may have the priests in view here, but it just doesn't change the rhetoric. It doesn't change the point. Thoughts on that? Are we okay on that? So, don't go back to Judaism. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, that just continues to be the theme, doesn't it? Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go to their dietary laws. Don't do any of that. All right, verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Okay, Christ was crucified outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem. That's what's meant by outside of the gate. In order to sanctify or make the people holy through his blood. All right. So the, okay. So I think what's going on here is the bodies, okay. The animals are, the bodies are burnt outside, outside the camp. But it was through that that they received their holiness, the high priest, the priest, the tabernacle, etc. Jesus also suffered outside, like that's the continuity, outside the gate, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So it's a greater sacrifice and a greater sanctification. That's where we're, that's where we're at so far. Then he pivots and does this unpredictable thing, 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Now there's the typological or allegorical Okay, so Jesus, now he's pivoting from the contrast of like, hey, it's the animals outside, the bodies of the animals outside. It were these animals that sanctified. Christ is outside. It's Christ and his blood that sanctifies. So there's the first contrast. Hey, Christ was thrown out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, out of Jerusalem. So we have been too. Let's go out there to meet him. Outside is good. So again, the rhetoric is don't go back inside the camp. But rather, as verse 13 says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So two very, di he's getting, he's getting his mileage out of that one. He's getting two very different points across by that same imagery of outside. So, as Christians, I think, I mean, more broadly, we shouldn't be afraid to be outsiders.
For here we have no lasting city. I mean, this is kind of complicated allegory. But for here we have no lasting city. Here he means like on earth. I mean, earthly Jerusalem would certainly be in view for him, like the Jerusalem below. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, here you have the now and not yet tension already even in Hebrews because he's already said we have come to the city. Now he's saying we seek the city that is to come. Uh, Yes, please. Yes, sir. I don't know the timeline exactly on on the destruction of the temple. I know it was 70 AD, but I don't know when this was, when Hebrews was 79 AD, excuse me. Um, yeah, with temple, that in light, uh-huh. uh, uh, that the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was over then, they couldn't return to the... Yeah, that's uh, why, so the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, and it is it is thought that this is written before 70 AD. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we don't know if it's earlier than that by a decade or what. I know, but Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. So, yes. in a way, he's setting up this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this uh, uh, don't return to Judaism. Yeah, there's he's no the lasting one set it up. city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think your point's well taken. Yeah, exactly right. This we have no lasting city would in part be because our Lord's predicted that it's going to be destroyed. We seek the city that is to come. Pastor? Yes. Also, uh, it seems to me that under the Judaic system, only the most elect had the right to partake of the supper. And now everyone, Christ is mediated for all of us. And so he says, um, we have an altar from those who serve the tent, have no right to eat for the bodies of those whose blood is brought into holy places. But he suffered outside, mm-hmm. meaning as I see it, that it includes everyone now. Everyone has a right to to the body and the blood. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's the contrast he's doing, because he's saying we, namely we baptized Christians who have left Judaism behind, we have an altar from which those who remain in Judaism have no right to eat. So they're eating the bodies of animals, we're eating the body of the Lord. Yeah, they have well. no right to eat that. And then you transition from this eating of the body of the victim to what happens to the bodies of the victims. Um, they are they are cast outside the camp. And so that that's his transition to Christ is outside the camp. And then, again, he gets rhetorical mileage out of this. It's kind of funny, but he's like, okay, so let's go outside the camp with him. Yeah, he's using it in these two very different rhetorical ways um, to serve the same larger rhetorical purpose. Okay, verse 15, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Uh, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is a beautiful way of rounding out the section 
because he's talking now, I think he's hinting at our spiritual priesthood and the sacrifices we have to offer are not those of the tent, but those of Christ. Thus, through him, rather than through the tent, he who is our temple, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, not an atoning sacrifice, that's been made once and for all, but sacrifices of praise, sacrifice of thanksgiving, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and then do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, we have a new temple, a new sacrificial system, and it's far superior. It's in Christ, and it's via our lips, our good works, our sharing what we have. Good? So, our, our praise by our lips to God is the praise for Christ. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And it's why, it's also why, I mean, I'm not going to belabor the point, but it's also why, uh, for Christians, morning and evening prayer are so essential. It's the pattern of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the prayers of the Old Testament. When we are praying in the morning, when we're praying in the evening, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That is the sacrifice of praise to God made daily. So what is the, what is the daily sacrifice we offer? If nothing else, it's our prayers. Of course, it's our whole bodies as we do good and as we share what we have. But yes, uh, the, the essence of which is prayer to God. So why it's really not, I mean, it's, it's really not optional. I don't know why Lutheranism or Christianity in the last century has gone to this. It's kind of optional. Don't be too crazy. You don't want to be too Christian. Uh, because it's really written deeply into our theology, biblical theology, the catechism, the history of the church. I don't know why we've lost this, but let's bring it back. What do you think? Yes, I think so too. All right, so um, verse 17 is somewhat reminiscent of verse 7. Verse 7 was, remember your leaders. And again, probably those who have died or been martyred. Or Here in 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So here's a command to um, obey not those who watch over your bodies, not the civil estate, but those who watch over your souls, um, the ecclesiastical estate. And they watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So there's a direct accounting for the pastoral ministry and oversight. Let them do this with joy, that is, watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right, the one who's caring for you, if he's groaning, <laughs> he's, groaning he's not going to be able to maybe uh, be as, as tender and and kind, and whatever other adjectives you want to use, as he otherwise might be. So yeah, just to obey your pastors. And the authority, I mean, we can just, we can go with this, like the author their authority is the word of God. It's not like obey your pastor when he tells you to do something stupid, you know. If he tells you to do something sinful, of course you don't obey him. You obey God and not man. That's, And if he tells you to do something stupid, you don't have to do it. Um, yeah, but, but generally our suspicion against pastors, I mean, I don't know, at least in the Lutheran Church, our suspicion against pastors is more harmful than good in general. We should, especially because we have a huge vetting process for them. So 
they're generally, I think we should think of them as trustworthy until proven otherwise. All right, uh, verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And I take verse 18, I'm looking here at the study notes, I don't see anything. I take 18 to be, he's including himself amongst the leaders. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. We're not here to lord it over you. We're not here to command whimsical things. And then I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So that's the prayers. And um, here, restored to you the sooner is, of course, a bit of a question. So uh, <laughs> the study note directs you back to page 2103 in your study for the uh, in your study Bible um, for the identity of the author and the various persons who this could be. But whatever the circumstances, he is separated uh, from them in one way or another. And by the way, I would say this. The, I, I, I become increasingly convinced that the only thing that has sustained the church in America and pastors in America it, are the prayers of the saints, the, the prayers of the faithful Christians around. That's it. I think that's it. if there's a faithful pastor, it's because he's held up um, by Christ Jesus at the pleading of uh, the saints. And if there's churches that are allowed to stand, they stand, faithful churches, I mean, they stand because of the Lord Jesus, and he's doing so because of the pleading of the saints. So this pray for us um, is, I, I think, cannot be un, uh, overstated. Cannot be overstated. Okay, um, on to verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the formal end. So, not to, I don't want to like overly parse this, but okay, he's the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. I think the clear implication is, hey, so if you're faithful to him, should you even face death, he'll raise you as well. Here then Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep which, of course, he says, I am the good shepherd. But there's a pastoral motif here, and a recognition, I think, in 17 and 18, where he's referring to the leaders, the, the episcopoi, I think it is, and the pastors. There's a reminder here that G our Lord Jesus is the great pastor, the great shepherd of the sheep. So, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by means of 
the blood of the eternal covenant, that's the cup that we receive in our lips, by means of the eternal covenant, equip you. I think that that's, so if you do the grammatical work here, he is saying, may the God of peace, by the blood of the covenant, equip you with everything good. That is, through the chalice, you would receive from God everything good. You would be equipped by God. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting take, because of course we know that on the basis of our Lord's words, that when we, re- when we receive the chalice, we're doing so for the forgiveness of our sin. But it's way more than that. Way more than just that. From the forgiveness of sins comes unfathomable blessings. And I think that that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to here. May the God of peace, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will. So, the fountainhead of all these blessings that come to us through the forgiveness of sins um, is this chalice, is this blood of the eternal covenant. All right, so um, another thing to point out, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That is the purpose. That is the purpose. It shouldn't need to be said, but I guess it still does. The goal is to do his will. Okay, working in us, this is uh, still probably the God of peace, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So yes, it is our aim to please him in all things, and we're pleasing to him in Christ Jesus, that's true, but it is also our goal all the more to please him on the basis of what we think, say, and do. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Of course, it's God, I love this, it's God doing the doing. It's he who is working in us that which is pleasing in his own sight. So, so wonderful. He cra- in a, when he rewards us, he crowns his own works. And then through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Good on that section? All right, the timing is working out perfectly. I can't believe this. In all the, uh, in all the trials that I ran in my mind, it never went this smoothly. All right. Verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. <laughs> For I have written you briefly. <laughs> I have written to you briefly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Um, this, of course, is the... Uh, yeah. Well, if you want to know more, go to page 2066 and 67 in your study Bible. So, um, our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Now, I know that all of this is kind of tantalizing. Let me just touch on the study note here. Um, though in regard to those who come from Italy, the study note says either those who are with the author in Italy or those who have come from Italy to the author. And again, it's directing you to the discussions that they have at various places. This one on 2103. 
Um, it is possible that the recipients of the letter could be in Rome or near Jerusalem. We saw why it would make sense that they're near Jerusalem just moments ago. The letter hints at no other possible locations. Yeah, so all of this is, um, I mean, all of this is tantalizing. It is at the end. It's hard to make heads or tails of. And even to the point where there's no accurate dating of this book, there's no understanding of the author. It's just before 70. We think he was not an apostle, probably based on what he writes, but all of that's up for grabs. Just to conclude with the study note, Hebrews sets forth God's grace in Christ, earned on the cross, ratified in the new covenant, and distributed in word and sacrament. By holding fast to the teaching of this sermon and by receiving God's grace through faith, we have fellowship with the writer of Hebrews and all the saints and look forward to our inheritance with them in heaven. Grant us grace, O Lord, to bear all the crosses of this life. Bring us with all the saints into the heavenly city. Amen. All right. Any questions? Very good. Well, it was a joy to study Hebrews with you. Um, we've got some exciting things coming up the next week or two. We're going to be looking at a hymn by um, Ephraim the Syrian, the Syrian, and he's going to be doing, uh, he's got a, this beautiful hymn about, um, if, as the vicar has paraphrased it, uh, Satan and death are having a debate about what the heck they're supposed to do now that Jesus is risen. <laughs> so we'll take a week or two. Vicar will be leading that class as we go through that. We'll reset, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of reconvene, and we'll be looking at Galatians. All right, the Lord be with you.